0: We've had the encouragement of confessing our sin and knowing we're forgiven. And now, Father, we enter into a time in worship where we open our hearts and our minds up to you and ask you to be our teacher. And all of us need to hear from you, God. We need to hear what you would have us hear and and have that be embedded in our hearts to bring change, to make us more like your son, Jesus. And so would you do that now? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are launching into a series this morning called The Power of Words, The Power of a Word. This is a series that's actually intended to prepare us for Easter. Easter's coming, did you know? And this is to prepare us for Easter. This is kind of a, I would call it a Lent light series, okay? Lent started February 14th with Ash Wednesday, like Lent season always does. And so we're a couple of weeks behind. Uh, what's new? However, still, in the spirit of Lent, we want to prepare ourselves for the the holy week of Easter. We're going to gather here on Good Friday. We're going to focus in on the cross. We'll come back on Easter Sunday. But in all of this time leading up to Easter, we want to invite God to be speaking into our lives. Uh, We want to invite Him to help us grow, make us grow. We want to invite Him to change us as we prepare for Easter celebration. But a problem that most of us has, if we're just frank, is a problem of space, space in our lives, having the necessary space for God to enter in, for us to hear Him speak, to really let God work in our lives. There's this weird pressure, this little thing inside all of us, even if we don't plan it, even if it's not deliberate, we tend to just fill up our lives and have so much going on, so much happening. There's just not a lot of room for anything more. Am I telling the truth? Yeah. So we hear talks about things like reaching up. Trevor was up here and, you know, we have this mantra. We like to rehearse what our mission, what our vision is, reaching up to God, connecting with Him, reaching in, connecting with people, people who know Jesus, people who don't, reaching out, serving, giving, volunteering, sharing our faith. And when we hear those kinds of things, it all sounds good, seems reasonable, but it's pretty overwhelming to hear it and to think about putting it into practice. So we just don't feel we have time for anything more. In this series, The Power of a Word, each week I want to look at just one word, a word that if we practice it, God can use to bring change into our lives, needed change. Our goal each week from now to Easter is going to be to walk through the right up to the cross on Good Friday and right to the empty tomb on uh, Easter Sunday morning. And between now and then, we want to make space for God in our busy lives so that, uh, so that we can hear him speak and hear him talk and have him work and prepare us and change us For that great celebration Sunday that's coming. This morning, we're gonna look at one word, and the word is no. That's the word. It's an important word. Uh, It's a word that can liberate us, it can help us set boundaries that we need to set so that there is space in our lives to reach up and in and out, the things we see Jesus doing in Luke 6. The word no is such a vitally important word. There was a time in your life when you loved this word, you were two or three years old. (laughs) And you said this word recreationally and joyfully and gleefully. Pick up your toys. No. Eat your peas. No. Share with others. No. And then over time, you learn that people like you better if you say yes rather than no. We don't like it when people say no to us. Um, And uh, they don't like it when we say no to them. And so we learn over time to say yes, yes. Yes. And it creates enormous problems in our lives. We say yes to bosses and we say yes to more things being added to the calendar and to our schedule. We say yes to meetings and yes to obligations and yes to burdens and yes to stuff we're going to buy that we don't really need, not if we stop and think about it. And yes to people we barely know and maybe don't even like. Yes, yes, yes. Until our lives are just crammed full. And we are living lives that are decent, respectable, exhausting, fatiguing, resent-filled, godless little lives. And the word we need to put into practice, I think, is the word no. Uh, There's an author, Shauna Nyquist, she wrote a book in 2016. It's a very interesting book. It's called Present Over Perfect. And she writes these words. She said, and so if you, like me, have said too many yeses and found that All that hopeful, exciting, wide-open intention has actually left you uh, scraped raw and empty. The word that can change everything is no. I know I don't like it either. Yes is fun and sparkly. It's printed on tote bags. But the word no, that's a different matter. What if you saw someone wearing a sweatshirt that just said no? I don't want to sit next to that bundle of fun. But no, she says, became the necessary scalpel I needed to wield in order to remake my life. I think that's a great image. She's she's captured a great image there. No is the necessary scalpel I need to wield in order to remake my life. Friends, I believe God wants you and me to learn to wield the scalpel of no between now and Easter. The Bible, among other things, of course, is a book filled with some amazing no's, a no's that actually changed the world. If you've ever read any part of the Bible, you've maybe heard of a guy named Joseph in the Old Testament. Uh, he had a lot of reasons to be filled with lots of self-pity, to think that he deserved a little pleasure, and uh, he was invited into a sexual relationship by his master's wife. But he knew, I mean, he'd been taught, he understood that that would be wrong, that that would mess him up, that that would not, not in any way, honor his God. He had this sense of identity, this sense of mission rooted and grounded in in his knowledge of God. And so he's able to say no in what was a very tempting, very difficult, pressure-packed situation. There were some young men, you've heard of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Uh, Their lives turned out very differently than they ever expected they would. They had a lot of disappointment. These were young Hebrew noblemen uh, carried off into exile. And they were constrained to serve a Babylonian king. At one point, they are invited to worship an idol. Maybe you know this story. But they, too, know this is wrong. We, We can't do this. To do this would compromise the very thing that anchors our soul. This would dishonor God. They know that. They know their identity. They know their mission. And so they are able to say, do you want to say it with me? No. Yeah. One of the great stories of the Old Testament involves a leader by the name of Nehemiah. Maybe you know this story too. Nehemiah, he was in Jerusalem helping rebuild the city of God, specifically the walls around the city. Just an FYI, this is a parenthesis, this is a free throw in, you can do with this what you want, but if you ever do try to glorify God in anything, doesn't matter if it's big, doesn't matter if it's small, I mean it could be being a parent, it could be volunteering and serving somewhere, it could be uh, just being an excellent employee at work, it could be leading or serving in a church, it doesn't matter. If you ever try to do anything to the glory of God, there will be forces that will try to stop you and distract you. That's just the case. It's just how it is. They will try to pull you away from who God wants you to be and from what God wants you to do. With Nehemiah, it's people who ask him to come meet with him. Again, if you've read the story, you know that uh, they have a very nefarious purpose, it turns out. But in the beginning, you don't really know that. They're just asking to meet. That's all. And uh, they're trying to interrupt him. And it seems like a reasonable request at the time. Probably I would have said, sure, okay, let's sit down, let's meet, let's talk. But this is what Nehemiah says. Nehemiah says, I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? And then Nehemiah tells us this. He says, four times they have sent me the same message. And each time I gave them the same answer. No, 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 and no. No. Good, good. Here's the point. If you are clear on your destiny, clear on your identity, clear on your mission, you will get clear on when to say no. But you have to know who you are and you have to know what you are called to do. The problem with most of our lives is they are so crammed full of stuff and burdens and obligations and priorities that we probably shouldn't have or should adjust that we are not clear on who we are and what our calling is, what our mission is. We need to wield the scalpel of no. We need to create space for the things that remind us clearly who we are and what we are called to do. No is a wonderful gift if we use it well if we use it with wisdom the good news is there is a man who lived on this earth who was a master of the art of no he said the most powerful and creative no's that have ever been said then of course i'm talking about good good it's always the right answer in church <laughs> jesus ministry actually began with no's. are you aware of that What I want to do in the time that we have left is walk through Jesus' three great no's. They are, in fact, no's that we need to practice. We need to embrace, I think. And so, here we go. You ready? Jesus has just been baptized, right? And he hears the, the voice of his father, which actually gives him his identity and seals this sense of call, this sense of purpose that he has hears the father say to him you are my son whom I love with you I am well pleased there's nothing better than that the father loving the son and then in Luke chapter 4 verse 1 we read this Jesus full of the Holy Spirit left the Jordan and was led by the spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil he ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he obviously was hungry Now, that 40-day period that's mentioned there in this story is where we get the 40 days of Lent. You probably already knew that. And so Jesus, you see, is in a situation. He's hungry. He's been fasting. Uh, He has a need. He's experiencing appetites, literally appetites. And the devil says to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Man shall not live on bread alone. Now, of course, Jesus is quoting the Bible, and all through this encounter with Satan, that's exactly what he does. And there's a really important context to this passage that Jesus quotes. It was written in the book of Deuteronomy, which is the book in the Old Testament. And Moses is, of course, with the nation of Israel that God has created. And he's at the end of his life, and he's reviewing everything that God has done for Israel and bringing them out of Egypt. And this is what Moses says. He, God humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known. And this next phrase is key. To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, Israel had been taught that man does live on bread alone. Israel was coming out of slavery in Egypt. In fact, uh, Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, tells us that one of their jobs was to build storehouses in the cities of uh, Pithom and Ramses. These two cities, they were storage cities. This is where many of the Jews, perhaps all of the Jews, were working at that time, building storage cities. And the point is, they were taught in Egypt that you cannot trust there will ever be enough. They were taught you have to have more and more and more and more. They were taught in Egypt that it's okay to enslave. It's okay to oppress human beings to cause them to live in miserable conditions so that the people who have can have more. And so that the people in power can stay in power. And God leads them into the wilderness to teach them a vital spiritual and economic lesson. Namely that God will provide for them. It is God they need to learn to trust in more than anything else. The rabbis uh, many centuries ago had a saying, this is it, no one could receive the Torah, the word of God. No one could really receive the word of God, understand the word of God, who had not received manna, the care of God, the love of God. (laughs) I think that's so true. You see, Satan, the evil one, comes to Jesus and uh, tempts him in this very, very area. But there's something about Jesus. Jesus has known the love and the care of God. And Satan tries to get Jesus to act as though his happiness, his sufficiency depends on his stuff. depends on what he has. And at the moment, he doesn't have bread. Jesus, your happiness, your satisfaction, your hunger, your life requires some bread. So make some, get some. And I'll tell you what, the world will always try to convince you and me that you are what you have. You do live by bread alone. We see in the Bible that when the Bible talks about bread, it's it's not talking about the stuff necessarily that we make toast out of. Um, Bread is a symbol for life. It's a symbol of material goods and satisfaction and the things that make life enjoyable. Jesus one time, of course, said, I am the bread of life. Ultimately, he is the root. He is the source of life itself. He is the one who sustains life. The evil one says, define yourself by the stuff you have. The evil one says, you should never have an appetite that does not get satisfied. Find your identity, Jesus, in your stuff make yourself some bread. And, uh, you know, the way we translate this into our culture, well, we need to have nice stuff, right? Nice house, nice car, nice job, nice money, lots of it, the more the better. If we're honest, every one of us hears this voice all the time, man lives on bread alone. That's one of the central messages of our culture. There's a great theologian, Miroslav Volv, wrote a book, I think it was 2015 or something like that, called Flourishing. It's a great book. Uh, He writes about the need for faith in human life. He says, when we live by bread alone, there is never enough bread. Not enough even when we make so much of it that some of it rots away. When we live by bread alone, we always want more and better bread. He's absolutely right. This is what our world tells us. you are what you have, so if you don 't have much you 're not much it 's that simple. Recently, Holly and I have had the privilege of getting counsel from a very good uh, retirement planning group right I know it 's way too soon, but anyway we 're yeah. <laughs> and uh, these people look at your finances i mean they comb through it with a fine tooth comb and they tell you where you are and what you need for. Uh, in in order to retire, right, and not live on the street. Uh, These folks uh, go through all this work, and they have a certain philosophy around this. They talk about five buckets, five buckets. You need a paycheck bucket, they say, and you need an on-deck bucket, and then you need a backup bucket, and then you need a tactical growth bucket, and then you need a strategic growth bucket. Everybody needs these five buckets uh, in order to fund their Retirement, they would say. And it's a very, very good, a very healthy, a very wise strategy for retirement. But I'm sitting there and I'm listening and I'm thinking, we're screwed. <laughs> I mean, we barely got enough to fill two buckets. And uh, we're two bucket people. Any two bucket people here? Yeah. And I'm telling you the truth as I'm listening to all this, <laughs> I'm starting to feel small. <laughs> I'm starting to feel stupid. I'm starting to feel insignificant. Starting to feel fearful. Here's the point. We live in a world that counts your buckets. We do. Nothing wrong with their philosophy. Nothing wrong with trying to get those buckets, you know, having as much. I'm not saying that, but I'm just pointing out, we live in a world that counts your buckets. And boy, we hear that voice all the time, every day. Friends, we've got to learn to say no to to that kind of thinking, to measuring ourselves on the basis of our buckets. Because man does not live on bread alone, says Jesus. Says Moses. Says Yahweh. But the question is this, how does it look to, what does it look like to say no to that kind of thinking? Practically speaking, what does it look like to say no to that? I want to suggest two things that you find in the Bible. Two things, they're very practical, you're going to hate them both. But these are the two most powerful things I know to suggest to myself or to you if you want to say no to this thing of finding your identity in the stuff that you have. Uh, The first one has to do with giving stuff away. Yay? Yeah. The other has to do with pushing stuff away. One is giving, one is uh, fasting. Both have to do with trusting God. Believe me, both have to do with trusting God and not bread alone. Here at Deer Creek Church, we believe that God has commanded his people to tithe, to live generously, and tithing is a piece of that. Tithing comes from a Hebrew word that literally means the 10th part, one-tenth, 10%. The practice of tithing is giving 10% of my income back to God. Do you know how many Americans, there's been a recent study done, I just got this book and I haven't read all of it, but I've read part of it. Do you know what percentage of the American population gives away 10% of their income to anything? You want to guess? 3%. 3% of the American population gives away 10% of what they they earn. The book of Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 27, this is an Old Testament book, says this. Uh, God says, "A, a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy. That means set apart to the Lord. In other words, it doesn't say, you know, give if you feel like it or give if you feel that or give what you have left over. God says that tithe... That's mine. Now, of course, the reality is the whole earth is God's. All of it, every bit of it. And everything that we have, every gift, every stitch of clothing you you wear, uh, everything you own, every car you drive, every home you have, what have you, it is a gift from God, whether you realize it, whether you know it, or whether you're grateful or not. But it's like God wants to teach us something, something vitally important, that we are not measured by our stuff. And God is saying, I want to teach you that generosity is the law of my kingdom. It's part of the fabric of this cosmos that I've created. It's actually the way that life is meant to work. Man does not live on bread alone. And so to help us with this, God says, I want you to regard the tithe, the 10%, as not belonging to you. It's mine. God wants us to give him the first 10% of what we make and learn to live off the remainder. Now, here's here's the thing about giving and uh, about money. Uh, Money is never about money. Uh, Money is always about trust. In what do I really trust? In who do I really trust? It doesn't take any trust to give God what's left over. Giving that way takes very little trust, but I'll just say this, living Practicing a tithe is always giving intentionally. It's always giving thoughtfully. It's always giving in a way that's planned, and it's always giving as worship. God was teaching Israel with the tithe to live by faith and to live by trust. Just that simple. And uh, this is just the truth of the human condition, I think, that none of us are really in control ever. We want to be. We think actually that we can be in control if we've got five buckets full. That's what we think, but, but we're not. Because it can all disappear in the blink of an eye, right? None of us are ever really in control no matter how many bucketfuls you, bucket you have. But I'll tell you what, when you practice tithing, what you are doing is you are saying no. You are acknowledging that God and God alone is in control. And you are saying man does not live on bread alone. I am not just what I have. My identity is rooted in my relationship with God. So I will honor God with what I have, and I will trust God to be faithful. Tithing is a trust and faith builder and a bread alone buster. That's why I recommend it to you. And I suggest this Lenten season that you, you practice, you prepare for Easter by thinking about where you are in the use of your own resources. Do you tithe? Do you give? Are you generous? You know that most Americans, when asked, are they generous, in this research project that was done, and I'm going to tell you more about this, I don't know, later in the year somewhere, because I'm finding it fascinating. But almost every American surveyed in that research project considered themselves generous even the ones that didn't give a dime to anything, any kind of charity whatsoever. Are you generous? Of course you think you are. We all think we are. But anyhow, God would have us be truly generous, generous like he is generous. As you prepare for Easter, make use of the discipline of tithing. Give something away. The other thing that I suggest is pushing stuff away. Fasting. You love this, don't you? Fasting. How many of you ever tried fasting? Quite a few of you. That's great. It's a a Bible word that means doing without. To fast means I temporarily refrain from consuming what I ordinarily consume. And uh, I do this on purpose in order to make space in my life for God. And to remember, I'm not just the stuff that I have. You can fast from all kinds of things, too. It's not just food. You can fast from food. You can fast from time, taking time away from one thing to give it to another. You can fast from TV. Anybody ever fasted from TV? Few, yeah, it can be a really good thing. You can fast from shopping, you can fast from purchases, you can fast from recreational activity, taking time out of that to put time into something else. All kinds of things that you can uh, fast from, anything that you consume, in fact, you can fast from. And fast from in order to make space in your life for God. This is a practice that people who follow Jesus have always used to say no to the idea that you are just what you have. This is what Jesus was doing in the wilderness. For 40 days. He was fasting. He was preparing, getting ready to launch a a public ministry. Now, a couple of things about fasting. Fasting is not a way to get God to give you what you really, 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 really want, God, so I'm fasting. It's not a hunger strike. Uh, It's not a way to twist God's arm. Fasting is also not the same thing as dieting. Some people hear fasting and think, well, you know, I do need to lose a few. You know, No. There is no how to look good naked fast in the Bible. Dieting may be a good thing, but uh, fasting is not dieting. That's not what it's about. When I fast, I'm recognizing that I have appetites. I really do, real appetites. All human beings are creatures of appetite. When you came into the world, you were a little bundle of appetites. It's almost all you were at first. Give me, give me, give me, give me food, give me attention, give me a dry diaper, give me a warm blanket, give me love, give me sleep. And by the way, as you get older, you start wanting the same things, but it's just something I'm noticing. Now, as we get a little older, we come to realize that there are really smart people working really hard to convince us that we are nothing more than an endless bundle of appetites. Appetites for food and clothes and cars and houses and recreation. There are people teaching at major research universities who believe that the universe is just a consuming machine and you and I, we are just cogs in that consuming machine. We're just a bundle of appetites. Your life is essentially about satisfying those appetites. That's your identity. That is your purpose. End of story. I'm not making that up. And you know what Jesus says to that? Jesus says, no, that is not who you are. You are an unceasing spiritual being. You are a glorious moral creature. And part of the nobility of being you is that you do not have to be captive to your appetites. You can choose not to gratify an appetite in order to accomplish a greater good. And so when I fast, I pray. It's one of the things I do when I fast. I listen to God. I will sometimes read the Bible and try to hear what it is he's saying to me. I will serve sometimes in a fast, deliberately taking time away from a meal to be able to go and do something, serve. I'm asking God to change me, to refocus me. When I do this, I discover that it's possible to have an unsatisfied appetite And survive. What a revelation that is in our culture. Not only that, I eventually might even learn that it's possible to have an unsatisfied appetite and thrive, you see. And so my challenge to you this Lenten season is to say no to something. Use the disciplines of giving and the disciplines of fasting, whether it's from food or time or shopping, electronics. You let God lead you on that. Say no to the temptation to believe that you are what you have. And so you've got to get more, 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 and more. My admonition to you is practice doing without. Now, that's point number one. Point number two and three are shorter. The second no that we see Jesus use uh, in this series of temptations uh, goes like this. Chapter four, verse five, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. Massive amount of arrogance in that statement, but anyway. So if you worship me, it will be yours, Satan says to Jesus. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You see the idea here? The subtext. Jesus, you could have the most impressive resume anybody ever had. You have such amazing powers. Use them. You could use them to do what no one else has ever done. The temptation, I think, the subtext is you are what you do. So do something, Jesus sacrifice your life your heart your soul your family sacrifice everything on the altar of achievement the first temptation is you are what you have the second is you are what you do if you don't do much you're not much man do we succumb to this temptation friends i love how jesus answers this temptation he goes off into the wilderness for 40 days and he just connects with the father that's what he's doing It looks like he's doing nothing from the outside, but in reality, he's actually practicing the discipline of Sabbath. Sabbath is about abiding, you understand, abiding in Jesus. In the Bible, doing without is called fasting. Doing less, abiding, seemingly doing nothing, that's called Sabbath. Sabbath is learning to abide and rest in and trust in God with your time, with your work with your productivity, some of the things that we think actually define us. It's stopping your work, what you normally do. So you're not creating value at the moment. You're not being important. People aren't looking up to you because of what you produce. You're not carrying the world on your shoulder, so to speak, but instead you're enjoying God. You are resting in him. You are trusting that the world won't come apart if you stop working, you see. Sabbath is saying no to the tyranny of the urgent. It's saying no to the insanity of the frenzied lifestyles that we live in our culture. It's really interesting. With Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, he goes into the wilderness. He's been driven there by the Spirit. And for 40 days, he doesn't give a talk. For 40 days, he doesn't draw a crowd. For 40 days, he doesn't recruit a team. He doesn't train a single disciple. He doesn't write a single book. He doesn't heal a single disease. Outwardly, he does nothing. Inwardly, he connects with his Father looks like he's doing nothing. But understand, this kind of doing nothing is really important for people who typically do a lot, for people who are tempted to think, I am what I do. Look at me. Look what defines me. You see, Sabbath is having a time each day and having a time each week where we completely shift gears. You don't do anything the world thinks is significant. You just rest in God. You connect with God. You connect with people. You linger around the table. This table. The table in your home. Big point. Jesus had a regular practice of Sabbath. Think about that. It was Jesus' regular practice to Sabbath. He would regularly connect with his father. He would do that daily. You'd find him up on a, very early in the morning, walking along the coast of the Sea of Galilee or up on a mountaintop. Or weekly, he would be in a synagogue or he would be in temple. He would practice Sabbath with others. And I have to admit, something inside me pushes back on this, always has. I don't really want to do what Jesus did when my son Ian, our oldest son, was just a little guy. He had just learned to ride a bike and, um, there were trails in a field not far from us. It's all built up now. It's, it's all, in fact, a business part, but back then there were trails. And uh, we would go out, and he would ride his bike, and it was funny to me. He always wanted to lead. He wanted me to follow him, and I'd say, okay, okay, I'll follow you, lead. And, but it was hard to do because he was little, and he was slow. And so I would keep getting in front of him, and he would keep calling me back. Finally, one point, I remember he stopped me, and he said, Dad... If you're going to follow me, you have to stay behind me. (laughs) He's right. (laughs) He's right. Here's the thing about Jesus. If you want to follow him, you have to stay behind him. You have to do what he does in this instance. Jesus goes off into the wilderness for 40 days and he sabbaths. And it looks like he's doing nothing. But in reality, he's probably doing the most important thing he could be doing he's worshiping, he's listening, he's praying, he's connecting with the Father. My challenge for us this season as we lead up to Easter is say no to that idea that you are what you do. Say no to the temptation that says, yeah, I really don't have time to connect with others in worship like we do here on a Sunday. And I've jokingly said this before, you know we do this every Sunday. We do it for a reason. Uh, One last no, very quickly. Jesus' third temptation. The devil led him, Jesus, to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. It's interesting, isn't it? Did you know the devil can quote scripture? He can twist it, he can use it inappropriately. So can we. But the devil did that with Jesus. For it is written, he says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it uh, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The evil one is saying to Jesus, again, kind of the subtext, you know, Jesus, man, I mean, you could do something so spectacular that everybody would be amazed here. I mean, you could be the golden boy. You could launch your your ministry in a royal kind of way. You could make everybody stand up and take notice. And here, friends, I think the temptation is you kind of are what people think of you. And that, friends, is the voice of our world. You are what you have. You are what you do. You are what people think of you. So certainly, don't be anything less than spectacular, right? Get people to notice you. Get them to like you. Get them to approve of you. Do anything it takes. And of course, this becomes an addiction, a slavery. I mean, we buy clothes for this. We buy makeup for this. I have $100 worth of makeup on right now. I wish, but uh, you probably wish. Actually, I don't care. uh, You think about Jesus, the sinless son of God. Who in his life did Jesus not disappoint? It's amazing when you look at the Gospels. Uh, The crowd says to Jesus in John chapter 6, Hey, we want you to be our king because, man, nobody can do the stuff that you're doing. And Jesus says no. And he disappoints them. The religious leaders, the Pharisees, just march through the Gospels, you'll see it. They're constantly saying to Jesus, hey, you're not living up to our standards, Jesus, what's with that? You're hanging out with the wrong people. You need to observe our customs. You need to follow our rituals. You need to be like us, Jesus, and Jesus says no, and he disappoints them. His mom and his brothers come to him at one point in his ministry, and it's kind of a frenzied, hectic time, and they say to Jesus, in essence, he's crazy. Jesus, you're crazy. You've lost your mind. You're insane. You need to come home and stop all this insanity. And Jesus says no, and he disappoints them. Herod said to him one time, this is, of course, after, uh, this is um, just before his crucifixion. Herod wants him to do a miracle for him. Herod's excited that he gets to interview Jesus, and he wants Jesus to do a miracle, and Jesus says no. And he disappoints them. James and John, you all know this. Jesus, they come to Jesus one day and they say, Jesus, let one of us sit on your right and one of us sit on the left. It'll be great. Just the three of us, just the three of us, Jesus, yes. And and Jesus says, no. And he disappoints them. He disappointed everybody in his life except his father. The practice around this one is very simple. It's just... Do the thing that honors God, period. Regardless what people think. Let go of the need to have human approval. Let people be disappointed in you if you are following Jesus. Be okay with that. Say no to the things you need to say no to. When somebody is not happy, just just be okay with that. Bottom line, you are not what you have. You are not what you do. You are not who people are think you are your identity is rooted and grounded elsewhere it is in fact rooted and grounded right here in this meal In what this meal means what this sacrament that we have on the table means when Jesus was hanging on a cross some of you know this the crowd cried out to Jesus hey hey Jesus save yourself why don't you come down off the cross they said to him And at the price of his own humiliation and his own suffering and his own life, Jesus said no. You see, he hadn't come to save himself. He had come to save people, a people for himself. And he had come to save you. And he had come to save me. And and friends, that is our identity. We are his people if we know him, if we follow him. And that is our mission. That is our purpose, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's our mission. That's our purpose. That's who we are. And this week, my challenge to you is to wield the scalpel of no in order to make your life what your life ought to be. Say no. So we have this, this meal, the this sacrament that Jesus has given us. It's a meal of hospitality. Uh, It's a meal of remembering because in it we remember the broken body of Jesus. Jesus said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And every time Christians gather around this table, we're reminded of the broken body of Jesus Christ for us we're reminded that Jesus said no and he stayed on the cross and he died on the cross for us. Jesus took the cup in that upper room with his disciples and he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the remission of sin. He gave it to the disciples and he told them to drink it. The shed blood of Jesus and the broken body of Jesus. These are the symbols that we embrace by faith and by faith we We experience the forgiveness and the grace and the goodness of God in Jesus. Our faith is strengthened. Our spirits are nourished when we come to this table. Again, the key ingredient is faith. It's faith. It's trust in him and him alone. We bring our sins even to this table, confessing them, repenting of them, and we have the knowledge that he has forgiven us. And so we invite you to the table if you know Jesus, if you follow Jesus, If you trust in Jesus and Jesus alone to save you, to rescue you, then we invite you to participate with us. Parents, if your children are here with you, be sure that they're at a place where they know Jesus. If not, use this as a teaching time for them. You know, let them know what it is you are doing. But, um, and if you don't know Jesus, put your faith in him, trust in him. if that's not the place uh, that you're at quite at this moment, then we just encourage you to sit in your seat and think and reflect, and, and we're delighted that you're with us. But this is, a, this is a family meal for people that have been adopted into the family of Jesus because of faith. I'm going to ask the uh, elders to come forward who are going to serve us, and as they do, I'm going to pray. Father, we have on this table um, the reminder of Jesus' broken body and his shed blood. And we come to this table thankful and grateful for what Jesus has done. We confess our sins, Lord, to you, which are many. But God, we take hold of the truth that we have the righteousness of Jesus. He has given that to us. Some of us, Father, come this morning with weak faith, but faith, nevertheless, strengthen our faith. All of us, God, need you to strengthen our faith, need you to nourish our spirits, our souls, as we feed on Jesus. We give thanks to you for this sacrament, this sign and seal of the work of Jesus on the cross. And we remember his death and look forward to Jesus' resurrection until he comes. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.